Welcome to Fast Asleep, listeners. You're here for either a very good night's sleep or you just want to listen to a really good story. Either way, we're glad to have you with us. Now, you are about to listen to part three of Daphne du Maurier's The Birds. And if you haven't heard parts one and two, run, don't walk back to your podcast provider and catch up to us. We'll wait for you. You may know that The Birds was not the only Du Maurier work Hitchcock filmed. There were several. Her thriller Rebecca became a film starring Sir Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine. Now, if you haven't seen this, do it. So good. And the novel Rebecca has never been out of print since it was first published in 1938. And it's also the setting, it's the same setting as The Birds, Cornwall, England. Oh yes, The Birds, oh geez. We need to get back to that, don't we? Sorry, let's tuck in and enjoy part three of The Birds. Have you boarded your windows? Asked Nat. No, a lot of nonsense. They like to scare you on the wireless. I've had more to do today than go around boarding up my windows. Oh, well, I I would board them now if I were you. Gah, you're windy. You like to come to our place to sleep? Uh, No, thanks all the same. All right, well, I'll see you in the morning. I'll give you a gull breakfast. (laughs) farmer grinned and turned his car to the farm entrance. Nat hurried on, past the little wood, past the old barn, and then across the stile to the remaining field. As he jumped the stile, he heard the whir of wings. A black-backed gull dived down at him from the sky. Mist swerved in flight and rose to dive again. And in a moment, it was joined by others. Six, seven, a dozen, black-backed and herring, mixed. Nat dropped his hoe. The hoe was useless, covering his head with his arms. He ran toward the cottage. They kept coming at him from the air, silent, save for the beating wings, the terrible fluttering wings. He could feel the blood on his hands, his wrists, his neck. Each stab of a swooping beak tore his flesh. If only he could keep them from his eyes. Nothing else mattered. He must keep them from his eyes. They had not learned yet how to cling to a shoulder, how to rip clothing, how to dive in mass upon the head, upon the body. But with each dive, with each attack, they became bolder and they had no thought for themselves. When they died low, sorry, dived low and missed, they crashed, bruised and broken on the ground. As Nat ran, he stumbled, kicking their spent bodies in front of him. He found the door. He hammered a 
upon it with bleeding hands. Because of the boarded windows, no light shone. Everything was dark. Let me in, he shouted. It's Nat, let me in. He shouted loud to make himself heard above the whir of the gull's wings. And then he saw the gannet poised for the dive above him in the sky. Now the gulls circled, retired, soared one after another against the wind. Only the gannet remained, one single gannet above him in the sky. The wings folded suddenly to its body and it dropped like a stone. Nat screamed and the door opened. He stumbled across the threshold and his wife threw her weight against the door. They heard the sound of the thud of the gannet as it fell. His wife dressed his wounds. They were not deep. The backs of his hands had suffered most and his wrists. Had he not worn a cap, they would have reached his head. And as to the gannet, well, the gannet could have split his skull. The children were crying, of course. They'd seen the blood on their father's hands. Oh, no, 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 it's, it's all right now, he told them. I'm not hurt, it's, it's just a few scratches. You play with Johnny, will you, Jill? Mammy will wash these cuts. He half shut the door to the scullery so that they could not see. Oh, his wife was ashen. She began running water from the sink. I saw them overhead, she whispered. They began, they began collecting just as Jill ran in from Mr. Trigg and I shut the door fast. It, it jammed. That's why I couldn't open it at once when you came. Well, thank God they waited for me, he said. Jill, she would have fallen at once. Why, one bird alone would have done it. Furtively, so as not to alarm the children, they whispered together as she bandaged his hands and the back of his neck. They're flying inland, he said. Thousands of them, rooks, crows, all the bigger birds. I saw them from the bus stop. They're making for the towns. But what can they do, Nat? Well, they'll attack. They'll go for everyone out in the streets, and then they'll try the windows and the chimneys. Why don't the authorities do something? Why don't they get the army? Get machine guns, anything. There's, there's no time. Nobody's prepared. Well, well, we'll hear what they have to say on the six o'clock news. Nat went back into the kitchen, followed by his wife. Johnny was playing quietly on the floor. Only Jill looked anxious. I can hear the birds, she said. Listen, Dad. Nat listened. Muffled sounds came from the windows, from the door. Wings brushing the surface sliding, scraping, seeking a way of entry. The sound of many bodies pressed together, shuffling on the sills. Now and again came a thud, a crash, as some bird dived and fell. Some of them will kill themselves that way, he thought.
not enough, never enough. It's all right, he said aloud. I've got boards over the windows, Jill, and those birds can't get in. He went and examined all the windows. His work had been thorough. Every gap was closed. He would make extra certain, however. He found wedges, pieces of old tin, strips of wood and metal, and he fastened them at the sides to reinforce the boards. His hammering helped to deafen the sound of the birds, the shuffling, the tapping, and more ominous, and he did not want his wife or children to hear it, the splinter of cracked glass. Turn on the wireless, he said. Let's have the wireless. Yeah, this would drown the sound also. He went upstairs to the bedrooms and reinforced the windows there. Now he could hear the birds on the roof, the scraping of claws, the sliding, jostling sound. Hmm, he decided. They must sleep in the kitchen, keep up the fire, bring down the mattresses and lay them out on the floor. He was afraid of the bedroom chimneys. The boards he had placed at the chimney bases, they might give way. In the kitchen, they'd be safe because of the fire. And he'd have to make a joke of it, pretend to the children they were playing at camp. If the worst happened and the birds forced an entry down the bedroom chimneys, it would be hours, days perhaps, before they could break down the, the doors. And the birds would be imprisoned in the bedrooms and they could do no harm there. Crowded together, they would stifle and die. He began to bring the mattresses downstairs. At the sight of them, his wife's eyes widened in apprehension. She thought the birds had already broken in upstairs. Oh, it's all right, he said cheerfully. We'll all sleep together in the kitchen tonight. It's more cozy here by the fire. And then we won't be worried about those silly old birds tapping at the windows. He made the children help him, rearrange the furniture, and took the precaution of moving the dresser with his wife's help, across the window. Oh, it fitted well. It was an added safeguard. The mattresses could now be laid one beside the other against the wall where the dresser had stood. Well, we're safe enough now. And then he thought, we're snug and tight like an air raid shelter. Well, we can hold out. It's just the food that worries me, food and coal for the fire. We've enough for two or three days, but not more. Well, by that time, no use thinking ahead as far as that. And they'd be given directions on the wireless. People would be told what to do. And now in the midst of many problems, he realized that, huh, it was dance music only coming over the air, not the children's hour as it should have been. He glanced at the dial, yes. They were on the home service, all right. Dance records? He switched to the light program. He knew the reason. The usual programs had been abandoned. This only happened at exceptional times, elections and such. He tried to remember if it had happened in the war during the heavy raids on London. Oh, but of course. The BBC 10 was not stationed in London during the war. 
the programs were broadcast from other temporary quarters. Well, we're better off here, he thought. We're better off here in the kitchen with the windows and the doors boarded than they are up in the towns. Oh, thank God we're not in the towns. At six o'clock, the records ceased. The time signal was given. No matter if it scared the children, he must hear the news. And then the announcer spoke. His voice was solemn, grave, quite different from midday. This is London, he said. A national emergency was proclaimed at four o'clock this afternoon. Measures are being taken to safeguard the lives and property of the population, but it must be understood that these are not easy to effect immediately, owing to the unforeseen and unparalleled nature of the present crisis. Every householder must take precautions to his own building, and where several people live together, as in flats and apartments, they must unite to do the utmost they can to prevent entry. It is absolutely imperative that every individual stay indoors tonight and that no one at all remain on the streets or roads or anywhere outdoors. The birds in vast numbers are attacking anyone on site and have already begun an assault upon buildings. But these, with due care, should be impenetrable. The population is asked to remain calm and not to panic. Owing to the exceptional nature of the emergency, there will be no further transmission from any broadcasting station until 7 a.m. tomorrow. They play the national anthem. Nothing more happened. Nat switched off the set. He looked at his wife. She stared back at him. What's it mean? said Jill. What did the news say? Well, that there won't be any more programs tonight, said Nat. There's been a breakdown at the BBC. Is it the birds? asked Jill. Have the birds done it? No, said Nat. It's just that everyone's very busy. And then, of course, they have to get rid of the birds messing everything up in the towns. Oh, we could manage without the wireless for one evening. I wish we had a gramophone, said Jill. That would be better than nothing. She had her face turned to the dresser backed against the windows, try as they did to ignore it. They were all aware of the shuffling, the stabbing, the persistent beating and sweeping of wings. Well, we'll have supper early, suggested Nat. Something for a treat. Ask Mammy, toasted cheese, huh? Something we all like? He winked and nodded at his wife. He wanted the look of dread of apprehension to go in Jill's face. He helped with the supper, whistling, singing, making as much clatter as he could. And it seemed to him that the shuffling and the tapping were so or not so intense as they had been at first. Presently, 
he went up to the bedrooms and listened. Huh. He no longer heard the jostling for place upon the roof. They've got reasoning powers, he thought. They know it's hard to break in here. They'll try elsewhere. They won't waste their time with us. Supper passed without incident, and then when they were clearing away, they heard a new, a new sound, droning, familiar, a sound they all knew and understood. His wife looked up at him, her face alight. Oh, it's planes, she said. They're sending out planes after the birds. That's what I said they ought to do all along. That will get them. Ooh, isn't that gunfire? Can't you hear guns? It might be gunfire out at sea. Nat could not tell. Big naval guns might have an effect upon the gulls out at sea. But the gulls were inland. The guns couldn't shell the shore because of the population. Well, it's good, isn't it? Said his wife. To hear the planes. And Jill, catching her enthusiasm, jumped up and down with Johnny. The planes will get the birds. The planes will shoot them. Just then they heard a crash. About two miles distant, followed by a second, oh, and then a third. And the droning became more distant and passed away out to sea. Well, what was that? Asked his wife. Were they dropping bombs on the birds? I don't know, answered Nat. I, I just don't think so. He did not want to tell her that the sound they had heard was the crashing of aircraft. It was, he had no doubt, a venture on the part of the authorities to send out reconnaissance forces. But they might have known. The venture was suicidal. What could aircraft do against birds that flung themselves to death against propeller and fuselage and then hurtled themselves to the ground. This was being tried now, he supposed, over the whole country and at such a cost. Someone high up had lost his head. Where have the plane gone, Dad? asked Jill. Oh, they had to go back to the base, he said. Come on now, time to tuck down for bed. Kept his wife occupied, undressing the children before the fire, seeing to the bedding, one thing and another, while he went round the cottage again, making sure that nothing had worked loose. There was no further drone of aircraft and the naval guns had ceased. Waste of life and effort. Nat said to himself. We can't destroy enough of them that way. The cost is too heavy. There's always gas. Maybe they'll try spraying with gas. Mustard gas. We'll be warned first, of course, if they do. There's one thing. The best brains of the country will be on to it tonight. Somehow that thought reassured him. He had a picture of scientists, naturalists, technicians, and all those chaps. They called the back room boys, summoned to a council. They'd be working on the problem now. This was not the job for the government. For the chiefs of staff, they would merely 
carry out the orders of the scientists. Well, they'll have to be ruthless, he thought. Where's the trouble, where the trouble's worst? Well, they'll have to risk more lives if they use gas. Oh, and all the livestock too, and the soil all contaminated. As long as everyone doesn't panic, that's the trouble. People panicking and losing their heads. The BBC was right to warn us of that. Upstairs in the bedrooms, all was quiet. No further scraping and stabbing at the windows. A lull in battle, so to speak. Forces regrouping. Huh. Wasn't that what they called it in the old wartime bulletins? The wind hadn't dropped, though. He could still hear it roaring in the chimneys and the sea breaking down on the shore. Oh, and then he remembered the tide. The tide would be on the turn. Maybe the lull in battle was because of the tide. There was some law the birds obeyed, and it was all to do with the east wind and the tide. He glanced at his watch. Nearly eight o'clock. It must have gone high water and hour ago. That explained the lull. The birds attacked with the flood tide. It might not work that way inland, up country, but it seemed as if it was so, this way on the coast. He reckoned the time limit in his head. They had six hours to go without attack. When the tide turned again around one twenty in the morning, the birds would come back. All right, there were two things he could do. The first, to rest with his wife and the children, and all of them snatch whatever sleep they could until the small hours. And the second, to go out and see how they were faring at the farm, see if the telephone was still working there so that they might get news from the exchange. He called softly to his wife, who had just settled the children. She came halfway up the stairs, and he whispered to her, "'You're not to go!' She said it once. You're not to go and leave me alone with the children. I can't stand it. Her voice began to rise hysterically. He hushed her, calmed her. All right, okay, he said. All right, I'll wait till morning. And, and we'll get the wireless bulletin then, too, at seven. But in the morning, when the tide ebbs again, I'll try for the farm. Hey, and they, they may let us have bread and potatoes and milk, too. His mind was busy again planning against emergency. They would not have milked, oh, of course, not this evening. The cows would be standing by the gate, waiting in the yard, with the household inside, battened behind boards, as they were here in the cottage. Oh, that is, if they had time to take precautions. He thought of the farmer, Trigg, smiling at him from the car, well, there would have been no shooting party. Not tonight. The children were asleep. His wife, still clothed, was sitting on her mas mattress. She watched him, her eyes nervous. What are you going to do? She whispered. He shook his head for silence. Softly, stealthily, he opened the back door and looked outside. 
It was pitch dark. The wind was blowing harder than ever, coming in steady gusts, icy from the sea. He kicked at the step outside the door. It was heaped with birds. There were dead birds everywhere, under the windows, against the walls. These were the suicides, the divers, the ones with broken necks. Wherever he looked, he saw dead birds. No trace of the living. The living had flown seaward with the turn of the tide. Those gulls would be riding the seas now, as they had done in the forenoon. In the far distance on the hill, where the tractor had been two days before, something was burning. One of the aircraft that had crashed, the fire fanned by the wind, had set light to a stack. He looked at the bodies of the birds, and he had a notion that if he heaped them one upon the other on the window sills, they would make added protection for the next attack. Not much, perhaps, but something. The bodies would have to be clawed at, pecked, and dragged aside before the living birds could, came, could gain purchase on the sills and attack the panes. He set to work in the darkness. Oh, it was queer. He hated touching them. The bodies were still warm and bloody. The blood matted their feathers. He felt his stomach turn, but he went on with his work. He noticed grimly that every window pane was shattered. Only the boards had kept the birds from breaking in. He stuffed the cracked panes with the bleeding bodies of the birds. When he finished, he went back into the cottage. He barricaded the kitchen door and made it doubly secure. He took off his bandages, sticky with bird's blood, not with his own cuts, and put on fresh plaster. His wife made him cocoa, and he drank it thirstily. He was very tired. All right, he said, smiling. Don't worry. We'll get through. He lay down on his mattress and closed his eyes. He slept at once. He dreamt uneasily, because through his dreams there ran a thread of something forgotten, some piece of work neglected that he should have done, some precaution that he had known well but not taken, and he could not put a name to it in his dreams. It was connected in some way with the burning aircraft and the stack upon the hill. He went on sleeping, though. He did not awake. It was his wife, shaking his shoulder, that awoke him, finally. They've begun, she sobbed. They've started this last hour. I can't listen to it any longer alone. And there's something smelling bad, too, something burning. And then he remembered. He had forgotten to make up the fire. It was smoldering, nearly out. He got up swiftly and lit the lamp. 
The hammering had started at the windows and the doors, but it was not what he minded now. It was the smell of singed feathers. The smell filled the kitchen. He knew at once what it was. The birds were coming down the chimney, squeezing their way down to the kitchen range. He got sticks and paper and put them on the embers, and then he reached for the can of paraffin. Stand back, he shouted to his wife. We've got to risk this. He threw the paraffin onto the fire. The flame roared up the pipe and down upon the fire fell the scorched, blackened bodies of the birds. The children woke, crying. What is it? Nat had no time to answer. He was raking the bodies from the chimney, clawing them out onto the floor. The flames still roared, and the danger of the chimney catching fire was one he had to take. The flames would send away the living birds from the chimney top. The lower joint was the difficulty, though. This was choked with the smoldering, helpless bodies of the birds caught by fire. He scarcely heeded the attack on the windows and the door. Let them beat their wings, break their beaks, lose their lives in the attempt to force an entry into his home. They would not break in. Oh, he thanked God he had one of the old cottages with small windows and stout walls, not like those new council houses. Heaven help them up in the lane in the new council houses. And that's where we'll stop for now. Please remember we have a collection of fast asleep episodes. They're all ready and waiting for you, each containing some author's wonderful masterpiece. So please take advantage and have a wonderful night.